Galatians chapters 5 and 6 just rock. I, I mean, I just absolutely love Galatians 5 and 6. They're incredible. They show us in detail how the gospel empowers the Christian life. How the gospel changes us, conforms us into the image of Christ. So tonight's passage serves as a great introduction to this topic. Let's look at it together. This is uh, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, if you want to turn there now. This verse again will be, this passage will be at ljc.life, and it'll be on the screens also uh, if you don't have a Bible with you. So this is Galatians chapter 5, and look at verses 1 through 6. This is Paul writing to the Christians uh, at the churches he planted in Galatia. Verse 1, Paul writes, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he's obligated to obey the whole law. You are trying to be justified, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words that you inspired the Apostle Paul to write. Thank you for the hope that they bring us. Thank you for the joy and the freedom that they bring us. And we just pray that you would Give each of us your spirit tonight so that we might have ears to hear these incredible words. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so freedom is the great carry-on call of Galatians, you could say. Now, why is that the case? Well, because God wants you to be free. He wants you to be free, and He wants you to walk in the freedom that He has given you through His Son. Look at verse 1. One of the most famous passages in the New Testament, famous verses, right? It says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. The Father wants you to walk in the freedom that the Son has offered you. But freedom has an enemy. And he's a tough booger, too. His name is legalism. His name is legalism. And he is a tyrant who would love nothing better than to enslave you with his heavy yoke of works-based righteousness. He would love nothing better than to remove the peace and rest and freedom you have in Christ. Now, what is legalism? What do I mean by the word 
Well, a simple definition is this. Legalism is treating anything, and I mean anything, that is good as if it were absolutely essential. That's legalism. Treating anything that's good in the world or in the Bible or in church, whatever, anything that's good as if it were absolutely essential. It's really just another form of idolatry. Now, many Christians and probably many in the room here tonight come from legalistic backgrounds. I know that I do. And so you grew up in churches where it seemed like almost everything was supremely important. Your Bible translation, the way you dress, the way you talk, the music you listen to, the movies you watch, etc., etc., etc. There's all these ticky-tack things that are just vitally important. Everything seems to be supremely important except the one thing which is in fact supremely important. I've heard so many Christians recall congregational meetings, and I've been in these meetings myself. <laughs> they recall these meetings where uh, it seems like the people are angrier about changes in the music style and the color of the carpet than they are about the thousands and thousands of people in their community who don't know Jesus. No, that's not a big deal. What is a big deal if you try to change my preferred music style? That's a big deal. These churches are unfortunately very common. And they are very toxic. But, let's be real. Legalism lurks in the shadowy corners of every Christian church. Every one of them. Why? Why is that? Well, it's because legalism lurks in the shadowy corners of every human heart. Every human heart. Like moths to a flame, our hearts are drawn to works-based righteousness. It's just so easy for us to lose sight of what really counts. We start thinking non-essentials are absolutely essential and insist that good things are not just good things, but that they are ultimate things, things you're ready to die for. And then, then we start to look with suspicion we start to look down our nose at anyone who doesn't worship the same idols that we do. Now, here in Galatians, the circumcision group, as Paul called them, uh, these are a group of false teachers had infiltrated the church, and man, they were the epitome of legalism. The epitome of legalism. A lot of times, legalism can be just super sneaky. And subtle. These guys weren't even subtle about it. They were just flat out, wide open, works based. Okay? 
they taught that the most important element of Christianity was circumcision and hardcore obedience to the law. Those are the most important elements. Circumcision and hardcore obedience to the law. In fact, that's what circumcision is. You're essentially saying, I will obey the law. The whole law. Now, this moralistic, legalistic teaching appealed to the moralistic, legalistic hearts of the Christians in Galatia. And they lost sight of the only thing that actually matters. Now, Paul gives us three important truths here in this passage. Number one, how we keep what counts. Number two, how we lose what counts. And number three, what counts. How we keep what counts, how we lose what counts, and what counts. So number one, how we keep what counts. Look at verse one. Paul says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. So he says it right here. We avoid legalism, and we keep what actually counts by standing firm in our freedom. Taking a stand for freedom. Americans ought to love that phrase, right? We take a stand for freedom. Americans love our freedom, right? Now, it is a well-established fact that it takes vigilance and great responsibility for any nation or group of people to maintain their political freedom. In America, we understand that. right? Our freedom is precious here, uh, and it has come at a great cost, a great cost to our fellow countrymen. Now, Paul is saying here that this is just as true in regards to spiritual freedom. This is not something to take lightly. In fact, the phrase stand firm here in the Greek is a military phrase. And it combines the, idea, the ideas of keeping alert and sticking together. So when he says stand firm, he means that we need to be alert and we need to stick together on this. We have to stick together on this. Free believers need to help one another stand firm in their freedom, continually proclaiming the Bible's promises of freedom and keeping a watch out for legalism. Uh, this is why there are no Lone Ranger Christians in the New Testament. There just, there just aren't any. There's nobody doing Christianity by themselves in the New Testament. Now today, a lot of Christians seem to have the only child syndrome. I've talked to a bunch of them, and they, they'll say, you know what, it's, it's just me and my Bible. It's just me and Jesus. And that's all I need. I, I don't need church. I don't need a church family to do this Christian walk at all. I'm good. Just me and my Bible. Uh, wrong. <laughs> that's wrong. With that mentality, you are essentially going to war by yourself. You're on your own. Look, Satan is absolutely dead set against you. Do you realize that? You realize that he hates you. 
and he hates your family. And he doesn't sleep. He is dead set against you and your life and your spiritual walk and your freedom in Christ every moment of every day. Every moment of every day. So if it's just you and your Bible, you have no one to watch your back. And you have no one to train you or no one to encourage you, no one to pray for you, no one to cry with you, no one to laugh with you, no one to remind you of the wondrous victory and freedom you have in Christ. If you don't have any of those things, then you are a sitting duck. You and your family are sitting ducks for the enemy and his attack of legalism. Of course, the irony is, so many times when I've talked to people like this who are Lone Ranger Christians, they're extremely legalistic about being Lone Rangers. For them, it's a hill to die on. It's bizarre. <laughs> They've taken an extremely unbiblical idea and set it up to be this ultimate idea. It's the hill to die. Oh, no, there's too many hypocrites in the church. I don't, do I don't have anything to do with that. <laughs> As if they are not hypocrites themselves. Unbelievable. Uh, and so they're just sitting ducks. Now, this is why we emphasize life groups every single week here at Life's Journey. If you didn't notice that, every day since I've been here, and I know Pastor Keith was very hardcore about this too, just about the importance of life groups, the importance of meeting together as a small group. We're hitting on this very principle right here. It's hard for the things I've just mentioned, people having your back, people praying with you, people training you, uh, people reminding you of the victory and freedom in Christ. Like It's just, it's hard for all of those things to happen just on a Sunday night. They can maybe happen to a small degree, but we think, uh, as a leadership team here at Life Journey, that they happen to a much better degree, a much deeper degree, when we're in a small group of people doing life together. It's just the best vehicle for that. Real friendships need to develop, real ones, not just superficial ones. Real accountability needs to develop. Uh, and, and we just think the best way for that to happen uh, is in small groups of people doing life together. And we call those life groups. So you can actually go right now, pull out your smartphone and go to ljc.life and click on the life groups tab. Uh, or you can see me after the service tonight. Uh, and I'd love to get you plugged in. We can get you plugged in this upcoming week. Uh, it's just super duper important, absolutely critical for your spiritual health to not be at war alone. Okay. All right, so that's how we keep what counts. Point number two is how we lose what counts. Let's look, let's look at verses one through four. One through four. Verse one, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. So the Galatians were not standing firm in their freedom. They were being tossed to and fro, and now... They are leaving grace 
and choosing works instead. Now, the false teachers in the circumcision group had offered them a heavy yoke of legalism. Like Paul, like what Paul just said, right? <laughs> you can't just be circumcised and you're good. No. If this is the way, the road y'all want to go down, if you want to go down the road of the law, <laughs> you got to obey the whole thing. The whole thing. You can't just think getting circumcised is, 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 is as painful and as hard as that might be. You can't claim victory after that. No. If this is the road you want to go down, if you want to try to be justified by, by the law, then you've got to keep the whole law without wavering on a single point. As James tells us in the New Testament, if you break one law, you've broken every law. So Paul's trying to tell them here, look, do you guys even know what you're asking for? If you're trying to gain righteousness through works of the law, good luck. Because you're in for it. You are in for it. Uh, and the Galatians are in high danger of accepting this heavy yoke of the law. But to me, the really startling word at the end of verse 1 is the word again. Did you, did you catch that word? The word again. Look, look, he says, Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. What in the world is he talking about? The Galatians aren't turning to the law again. This is the first time they've ever turned to it. Remember who the Galatians are. You see, the Galatians used to be pagans. They weren't Jews. They were Gentile pagans. And they were under the slavery of literal idols made of wood and stone. They worshipped little wooden and stone statues. Okay, they, weren't, they were not Jews. They were not under the law before. They were under this pagan system. So what in the world is Paul talking about then? What do you mean, Paul, <laughs> that we're going to be enslaved again? This is the first time we've ever tried the law. What are you even talking about? Well, here Paul is making the astonishing claim. It's astonishing. He's saying that pagan idolatry and biblical legalism are the same thing. You see? Worshiping little wooden statues is the same thing as taking a stand on a version of the Bible. As if that were the ultimate thing. Do you see? For Paul, it's all idolatry. It's all idolatry. Legalism is idolatry. He's saying, Galatians, guys, you're just going right back to where you were before. Both pagan idolatry and biblical legalism puts you in bondage. The Galatians converted from paganism to Christianity. Okay, so these are legitimate Christians. He's not talking here to unbelievers. He's talking to believers, legitimate Christians. But here's what's happening. The false teachers have entered this church and are convincing these Christians to trade, to trade the grace-based religion they converted to for a works-based 
legalistic version. They're convincing them to trade. And Paul is saying that if you go from paganism to religious legalism, all you've done is jump from the frying pan and into the fire. Under the moral law, you will experience the same amount of guilt and burdens that you did under paganism. Look, let's, let me get this out right here in case you're wondering this. Obeying God's moral law is a good thing. It is a good thing. Of course it is. But Paul has the audacity to say this. If you obey the law for the wrong reasons, if you obey because you think it will enhance your relationship with God, or because you think it will earn you more blessings from God, or because you think you'll avoid punishment from God, you're actually in sin. You're in sin. You're a legalist. That's all that you are. You see, for Paul, the reasons make all the difference. The motivation behind the obedience makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons for Paul is idolatry. It's idolatry. Whenever we turn to good things and turn them into ultimate things, we are in grave grave danger of losing the only thing that actually matters. Which brings us to our last point. Point three, what counts? Let's look at verses five and six. Verse five. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith, expressing itself through love. Now, the English reader of the New Testament has an unfortunate problem. We have an unfortunate problem. And here's our problem. Is the word hope here in verse 5 does not mean in Greek what it means in English. You see, in English, the word hope means not so sure. Right? So if someone says, hey, Dustin, are the Tennessee Vols going to win this Saturday? I'm going to say, I hope. What about the Mississippi State Bulldogs, right? Are they going to win this Saturday? <laughs> right? I hope. Right? I mean, you want it, but there's insecurity there. You don't really know. You want it, but uh, it's up in the air whether it's actually going to happen or not. But this word in the Greek means something much different. In fact, it's almost the exact opposite. You see, in Greek, the word hope means 
total assurance. It means total confidence. Notice that Paul is so confident in this hope that he says that all we have to do is, quote, await it. Just await it. We don't strive for it. We don't work for it. We know it's coming. It's on its way. Paul says, we, quote, eagerly await it. Eagerly await it. We don't bite our lips and cross our fingers. With joy, we wait. Because our hope is sure. (laughs) It is sure. But what is the hope that we await? Verse 5 tells us. Righteousness. Righteousness is the hope that we await. Now what does that mean? Righteousness here does not mean good behavior. It's not what this is talking about. Righteousness here means a completely right record and right relationship with God. That's what it means. Paul is saying that today, Today, we can live in light of our certain, guaranteed future glorification and welcome by God into his arms. We can live today as if it's true because it is true. It's concrete. We're not crossing our fingers and hope that this happens. No, that's the English version of hope. The Greek version of hope is concrete. All we have to do is just joyfully await it. With a smile on our faces, we wait because our hope is sure. It is a concrete reality for every Christian. And it's on its way. This is why Paul says in the next verse that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision even counts. Do you catch that? What does he say? For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. Like y'all are working for stuff that doesn't even mean anything. Do you see what he's saying? Look at what he's saying. He's saying neither moral exertion nor moral failure count on your record. At all. Period. They don't count. They don't make it on there. Your moral successes don't increase God's love for you. And your moral failures don't decrease it. His love is permanent. And your place in his kingdom is permanent. There's nothing you can do to add to it. And there's nothing you can do to take it away. But how? How? Verse 6, for in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, 
neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Do you see? The only thing that counts is faith. Faith. And that's it. <laughs> not your faithfulness, not your tithing record, not your church attendance, not your life group participation. None of it counts. Circumcision doesn't count. Uncircumcision doesn't count. None of it counts anymore in Christ Jesus that's all done away with. The only thing that counts for you now is faith. But faith in what? Did y'all catch my new sign? Faith in what? It's not just faith in anything. It's faith in Jesus. And what he has done. That's the faith that counts. Faith in Jesus and what he has done. You see, you will stand before God one day at the judgment seat. And God will ask to see your record of righteousness. This will be the most terrifying moment imaginable for many. Because they will pull out their record and see page after page after page of wickedness and rebellion against their Creator. That's all they'll have. Deplorable and embarrassing sins is all they'll have. But not you. Not me. Not those who have faith in Christ. You see, for you will pull out your record too. And you will see that all of your sins have been washed away. <laughs> They're washed away. How? By the blood of the Lamb. Not by your church attendance. Not by your tithing record. Just by the blood. Your sins were as scarlet, but His blood has washed them white as snow. And the very nanosecond that you placed faith in Jesus and his gospel, that very nanosecond, you exchanged your record of sins for his record of righteousness. Was it Luther that called this the great exchange? This is what faith does. The very second you place your faith in Christ, you exchange records. You gave him your list of deplorables. 
And he gave you his record, his perfect record of righteousness. And as terrifying as that day will be for unbelievers, it will be glorious for believers. Do you have any idea what joy you will have when you get to hand the Father the righteous record of Christ? <laughs> you can't comprehend how happy you are going to be in that moment. Because not one of your failures is going to be on here. All of Jesus' successes will be, though. Jesus didn't just die for you, right? He lived for you, too. And his perfect record of righteousness is credited to your account. By faith. By faith. And faith alone. And this faith will be expressed right now in this life. It will be expressed in your life through love. That's what Paul says, right? Verse 6. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Again, this isn't works. This isn't you just trying really hard to be a loving person. No, the faith itself, right? The faith itself will express itself through love. Love for both God and neighbor. You see, the glorious hope that awaits you will produce in you a powerful love right now. You don't have to wait for it. It will produce a powerful love in you. And how could it not? How could it not do that? You see, you're not loving and serving your neighbor so that you can earn this eternal hope. No. By grace, through faith, you already have it. It's already yours. You already have this righteous record and this right relationship with God. It's, it's yours now. Do you not see how that will produce a radical love for neighbor and for God? Charles Spurgeon tells a great story to illustrate this point. He writes, Once upon a time there was a gracious king who ruled over everything in a land. There was a gardener in the kingdom who dearly loved the king. And one day the gardener grew an enormous carrot. An enormous carrot. And so he took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I wanted to present it to you, my king, out of my love and my respect. For you. The king was so touched that as the gardener turned to leave, the king said, Wait, you are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give a plot of land to you freely 
as a gift so that you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. Now, there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all of this. And he said to himself, My, if that is what you get for a carrot, what if I give the king something far better? And so the next day, the nobleman came before the king, and he was leading a handsome black stallion. He bowed low and said, My lord, I breed horses, and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will breed. And therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and simply said, thanks. And he took the horse and dismissed him. Now, the nobleman was openly perplexed. And so the king turned to him and said, let me explain. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you were giving yourself the horse. Spurgeon then pointed out that if you're not a Christian, and let's say you're feeding the poor or clothing the naked, because you think that will get you into heaven, you're really not feeding the poor or clothing the naked at all. No, what you're really doing is doing all of that for you. You're doing it for you. You're doing it for the brownie points. Also, if you're a Christian and you're feeding the poor and clothing the naked because you think God will approve of you more and maybe bless you more, or maybe you can avoid some punishment from God by doing these things, you're not really feeding and clothing the poor, you're feeding and clothing you, yourself. You're not doing it all for your neighbor or for God. It's all for you. But don't you see how the gospel changes this dynamic? You see, the gospel changes this altogether. Because if it is true that Jesus has done all the work, do you see the one word that's repeated multiple times here? It's not me. It's not I. It's Jesus. Jesus died for our sins in our place. Jesus was buried. Jesus was raised. Jesus appeared to many. Jesus now reigns over all things. If it's true that Jesus has done all of the work, if it's true that he gave his life to pay for all of your sins, if it's true that your faith and your faith alone in his death and resurrection has permanently secured your place in the kingdom, then and only then can you love your neighbor for your neighbor's sake. 
Do you see? Then and only then can you love your neighbor for your neighbor's sake. Then and only then can you actually feed the poor and clothe the naked. Then and only then are you free to love and serve Jesus and his kingdom. You see, because you're not doing anything for yourself anymore, Jesus has done it all. There's nothing left for you to do. All of your brownie points were earned right here. Okay? That's where all your brownie points come from. There's none left for you to earn. There's no punishment left for you if you don't do them. Right? Jesus took all of your punishment. There's no punishment left for you. Do you see the freedom that comes through the gospel? If it's true that Jesus has done all the work and there's no more work for me to do, now I can love my neighbor for her sake and her sake alone. I don't have to do it for me anymore. There's no brownie points to be earned. If the gospel's not true, I can still serve my neighbor. The religious person can still serve their neighbor. They could do that. I could go next door and mow her grass for her anytime I want. But if the gospel's not true, then the whole time I'm mowing my grass, I'm looking over my shoulder to make sure God's watching me. To make sure I get my brownie points for this. Right? I'm not really doing it for her. I'm not mowing her grass. I'm mowing my grass. I'm doing it for my sake. But if the gospel's true, and it is finished, if that's true, then I can mow her grass without ever looking over my shoulder. I can actually do it for her. I can actually love my neighbor. And this is how the gospel changes us. Christians, you see, Christians need the gospel equally as much as non-Christians do. We need to be reminded of the gospel every minute, every hour of every day that there's no reason to look over our shoulder. That the Father is infinitely pleased with us because of Jesus. Not because of us, but because of Jesus. And this is the ultimate irony. <laughs> it's the ultimate irony. Resting in Christ, resting in what He has done, produces the most real work for Christ. So you weren't really working for Christ before you understood the gospel. You were working for you. <laughs> you were working for his kingdom. You were working for your kingdom. But once you came to believe the gospel of grace, that it is finished and that there's no more brownie points to be earned, well, that's a game changer. When I rest in what he has done, that makes me want to do more for him than I ever did before. And now I can actually do it for the right reasons. Back to Paul's point that it's the motivation that matters. It's the motivation that matters, and the gospel changes our motivation. Because now we don't mow our neighbor's grass to earn brownie points. We do it because we love our neighbor. And for no other reason. It's only through gospel rest that you can for the first time truly work for God 
and neighbor. And say with the hymn writer, Help me, Lord, to ever be a faithful child of thine, washed in thy blood that flowed so free and filled with love divine. I press my hand, dear Lord, in thine and walk by faith with thee. Oh, let thy glory in me shine that men thy life may see. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for everything that he is and everything that he has done for us. Please help us magnify him. in every area of our lives. Help us take a back seat so that he can have the front seat. Oh, Father, that we might see Jesus. That we might see your beautiful and precious Son. And we know his radical love for us will cause us to have a radical love this world that he died for. And so that's all we're asking for tonight, Father. Is open the eyes of our hearts to see Jesus. To see the truth of his love and forgiveness and mercy and justice and beauty righteousness. Give us eyes to see Jesus.